Tonight on Farage, is the panic at the pumps caused by a failure of political leadership? We'll look at the practicalities of key workers getting preferential preference over ordinary motorists. Could that just lead to the most enormous rows? And joining me on Talking Pints is Brexit backer, Boris backer, hotelier, Sirocco Forte. Well, the scenes this morning driving in through South London were very like yesterday, I must say. Uh, some garages with absolutely no fuel at all, some with unleaded and no diesel, some the other way round. And you can see massive queues forming at some of these stations. And once people get close to the pumps and a moped comes and jumps in, uh, it all starts to get really unpleasant. Lots and lots of arguments. And we'll talk about those queues and how nurses and doctors and others can somehow jump those queues, which is going to be very difficult, I think, on some of those roads. Some really bad behaviour, I think. Um, violence, all sorts of extraordinary things going on. Uh, this particular example, uh, somebody actually, you know, taking out a knife and threatening somebody. I mean, it is pretty disturbing stuff. Now, you could argue... Uh, that we see this in our major cities on Friday and Saturday nights. But this is going on in petrol stations. Uh, yeah, it's horrible, it's awful, and we will tonight talk about how key workers can get priority without even more aggravation and how on earth staff in those stations will be able to decide who is entitled to petrol or diesel and who is not. But what we have here going on right now are two major energy crises. The first is supply of electricity and gas and the cost of it. And the fact that successive governments have gone unthinkingly for wind energy. I guess it's a way of showing their virtue, not just to the British public, but to the G7, uh, the UN and the wider world. And what we learnt, of course, in the first half of September is that when the wind doesn't blow, when we get calm weather, Far from providing 25% of our energy needs, it provides about 2%. And that's where the rising price of gas and actually a bit of a shortage of natural gas uh, has really come into play. And so we've seen energy firms going bust, household bills set to rise. But even more disturbingly, because we do not have proper storage facilities for natural gas, France and Germany have about 20% of their annual needs in storage, strategic storage. We have 1.7%. It's not impossible that at some point the lights literally could go out. So if you're driving a Tesla today, I reckon you're feeling pretty smug. But you won't feel very smug if the lights go out at some point this winter. Indeed, given how computerised we are, uh, everything would come crashing down. Successive governments have failed strategically to think about reliable energy and have put us into this mess. We now need to have proper leadership and a real debate about how nuclear fits in to all of this. But, of course, the more immediate energy crisis is the panic at the pumps. And it is panic, I have to say. You've seen some of that terrible behaviour, but people genuinely worried, and not just key workers. I met, I met a chap this morning... Um, I went to the local petrol station. I mean, there was no petrol, but I bought some newspapers. 
a chap said, well, you know, my mum's moving house tomorrow. We're just not sure now whether she'll be able to. So this is affecting absolutely everybody. Some are telling us that there are signs today of the panic easing as deliveries increase to petrol stations. Well, we'll find out over the course of the next few days. Uh, I'm not absolutely convinced. I think once panic set in, people will keep rushing to each station that opens. But this, in many ways, was predictable. There has been a shortage of lorry drivers. Even before the Brexit referendum, folks, we were 50,000 HGV drivers short. Monsieur Barnier was in London today saying this, of course, is all a consequence of Brexit. Well, actually, in many ways, it's EU membership that put the HGV industry into this mess because it allowed the hauliers to go for cheap foreign labour which drove the prices of people that drive these trucks down to about £11 an hour. £11 an hour for a job that gives you a huge degree of responsibility, for a job that often means sleeping in cabs, in laybys, in service stations, often in some pretty unsafe places. Not surprising that many people have opted just not to stay as HGV drivers so far from uh, leaving the European Union being the cause of this problem, actually what we're now seeing are wages going up and hopefully people attracted back into it. But this isn't going to happen because the real problem here is the DVLA. They've been way behind during the whole of Covid, working from home. There was a strike there in August and from what I can see, Grant Shapps has done precious little to deal with it. It is a failure of his leadership. And as for the plans, oh, it'll be OK, guys, because 150 army lorry drivers who are regulated to carry hazardous materials, they're going to come in and save the situation. We'll just have a think about this. There are 8,500 petrol stations and forecourts in this country. Uh, frankly, this doesn't scratch the surface. The problem is there at the DVLA. The problem is that we have a government who seem to court short-term popularity based on what focus groups say, rather than looking ahead and anticipating problems. And frankly, the rest of the world is now laughing at us. And Boris Johnson, since he got back from America until about an hour and a half ago, had not said a single thing about this mounting crisis that is affecting pretty much every family in the land. And Boris Johnson, uh, you know, you'll learn something here. You may have been very popular, but if people start to view you and your government with contempt, your popularity will fall off a cliff. So he did, 90 minutes ago, say some words about this crisis. Let's hear it. We now are starting to see the situation improve. We're hearing from industry that uh, supplies are coming back onto the forecourts in, uh, in the normal way. And uh, I would just really urge everybody to just go about their business in the, in the normal way and, and fill up in the normal way when you, when you really need it. And, uh, and you know, things are, uh, will start to improve. What we want to do is make sure that we have uh, all the preparations necessary to get through till Christmas and beyond, not just in the uh, supplying the, the, the petrol stations, but all parts of our supply chain.
I think what happened with the, with the fuel uh, issue, with the, with the petrol uh, pump business, was that unfortunately there was a, there was a, a slightly misleading account of, of something which got, which got leaked and caused a big, uh, totally understandable surge in, in public demand. Uh, we think we can, you know, the, the, the actual number of lorry drivers that were short in that particular sector isn't, isn't very big. But generally, there is a, there is a shortage in, in that profession uh, around the world. And what we want to see is a, an emphasis on high wage, a high skill, a high productivity approach to our economy. Well, that was the Prime Minister. I hope that inspired confidence in you. It didn't in me. He talks about shortages of drivers all over the Western world. Well, he's right. That is right. What he didn't say was there is a backlog of 50,000 HGV people who've applied to the DVLA in Swansea and they are waiting to be processed. So I'm not particularly convinced that he is going to grip this. Well, joining me uh, to discuss this crisis is Patrick Cousins, crisis management expert. Uh, and Patrick, I know there is a national emergency plan for fuel in place, uh, but I have to say... Uh, the, the extent to which the DVLA um, have not been hurried along has really shocked me. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, you, you've touched here on, on leadership. There's been a lack of leadership in this situation uh, before the crisis and indeed during it. So before the crisis, obviously, in terms of, uh, of the DVLA and various other measures that, that could have been put in place. Uh, very, lots of industry groups have been warning about uh, the, the risks here to supply uh, for some time. So there are, there are a number of different uh, 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 opportunities for the government to step in uh, and, and speed things up because HGV drivers are enormously strategically important to the country. It's not just about petrol. It's also about supermarkets, also about key medicines. But this is a really, really key sector. And the government hasn't grasped the metal on it before the crisis. And certainly Boris hasn't grasped the, uh, the, the metal during the crisis either, as you say, and as we've just seen, he's come out half an hour ago after the horses bolted uh, to talk about uh, the fact that, well, things are getting back to normal and things, everything's going to be OK, isn't it? But actually what we needed was much earlier leadership from him coming out a few days ago rather than leaving it to Grant Shapps, coming out as the prime minister, as the premier with, a, with, with this crisis in hand and saying, actually, Everybody needs to, to modify their behaviour in some way and then things will get back to normal. Actually, what we've had is Grant Shapps blaming drivers for, for, for panicking whilst not doing anything to really reassure people that they shouldn't be panicking. No, and just hoping it'll all sort itself out in a few days is not really leadership. Uh, and you're right. I mean, Boris has been missing in action um, until just a few moments ago. When it comes to deliveries of fuel to those 8,500 forecourts. I mean, is, is not the truth that actually most deliveries this week will be very similar to deliveries last week? Yeah, that's right. The, 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 uh, the, the panic here has certainly made this situation considerably worse. And that is exactly where the, the, the failure of leadership comes in, because uh, had there been the opportunity to really reassure people about the, the fact that, that the, uh, the petrol was available and that if people were able to modify their behaviour, then this situation could calm down. If that message had come through a lot earlier on, uh, then, then this situation would not have escalated to the point that it has escalated. Certainly when we are 
advising our clients at, at PLMR about how to take control of a situation, whether that's a, a chief executive of a business or whoever, we would tell them they need to be visible, they need to demonstrate that there's control, and they need to demonstrate confidence that there's a plan. That hasn't happened. And if that had happened much earlier on, then people would have uh, would have calmed down a lot earlier. Uh, and also this situation wouldn't have got to the point that it's got to. 20 years ago, we had a fuel crisis. It was Farmers for Action blockading the refineries. Um, how did the government deal with it then? Was it a different approach to crisis management under Tony Blair? Yes. So you saw uh, it back in 2000 that, that Tony Blair actually held a, a press conference on the forecourts with the with the petrol retailers to say, look, this is the situation uh, and uh, we, we, we all need to, uh, to to modify our behavior and, and to, to take control of the situation. Uh, and, and if we do that, then we'll be able to, to move through it. But he was front and centre and visible. And that was the key thing. He, he made himself available. He went down to the garage. He stood there. He stood next to the people that were making the decisions uh, and running the logistics of, of petrol stations and said, this is the situation and this is how we're going to get out of it. Where it was, what we've had from the, from, from the government is none of that. They haven't been there. They haven't been visible. Grant Chaps has been sitting in his office uh, talking to people on the television uh, and blaming them for, 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 for their own behaviour, whereas actually what they needed to do was project some confidence and tell people how they ought to behave uh, and to modify their behaviour accordingly. Patrick Cousins, thank you for your insight. Well, they were fairly damning words, weren't they? Now, the plan is... And it was Surrey County Council that first started talking about this, but it is all part of the government's emergency plan for fuel, that if by Thursday or Friday this situation has not resolved itself, then key workers will get priority access to fuel. Now, it's worth noting that something like this was put in place back in 2000, but it excluded school teachers and vast numbers of schools simply had to close. So I wonder, in practical terms, how does this work and what pressure does it put on individuals working within petrol stations? In fact, does it even begin to threaten their safety? Well, these questions I'm going to put to Brian Madison, chairman of the Petrol Retailers Association. And, Brian, good evening. Thank you for joining us here on GB News. Good evening. So how does this work? Do you, do you designate one petrol station that is there just for however we define key workers? Or do we have, you know, two hours in the morning and two in the evening? In practical terms, how does your industry put this into place? Well, we have very little confidence in this emergency plan and have said so to government. Um, each of the local authorities across England, Wales and Scotland, only Northern Ireland has its own emergency plan. So those three countries, all the local authorities, uh, decide which filling stations in their authority areas they want to be deemed as designated filling stations. So we have probably uh, just over 10% of the total number of forecourts designated as DFS. Now, in the interim, since these emergency plans were revealed, um, the local authorities should have set up local resilience forums. And those local resilience forums should have visited all the designated filling stations to tell them how the plan would be enacted if it were to be enacted. I think the number of LFR, LFR visits has been remarkably few. 
So a lot of our members who are designated filling stations would probably just want to close up and forget it because the risk to their staff is enormous. There is no clear way. Oh, he's gone. That is a little bit disappointing. That was Brian Madison, chairman of the Petrol Retailers Association, and the line has gone down, which is a shame, uh, because what he had to say was very interesting, and rather what I suspected, that it's very easy in theory to say this, but in practice, difficult to implement. Uh, and, you know, what happens if someone turns up and says, look, you know, I'm a voluntary carer for my elderly mother. She's not well. I've got to get her to the hospital. Can I have some fuel, please? You can see all sorts of problems coming here. It's not going to be straightforward. But I do think very strongly that the panic at the pumps is as much as anything else a complete failure of political leadership in this country. And I lay that charge very firmly at the door of Grant Shapps. This DVLA crisis should have been dealt with some time ago. And Boris Johnson, for frankly, being in hiding for far too long and giving, when he did give those statements, something that I thought was rather weak-kneed. I think we've got Brian Madison back. Brian. Hello. Hello. You were just explaining that, you know, for the safety of your staff. So, actually, for this to work, you would need security, wouldn't you, in those garages? And we've asked whether police resources would be available, and the police have said no. Unless there was actually a major fight, confrontation, bumper cars playing on the forecourt, they would not come out. Occasionally, they might come out if there is a total scrummage on a main road, but there was no resource available to forecourt. So our members, a lot of them said, well, this is just ridiculous. We will close. So the whole concept uh, falls to pieces. Yeah, I, I have to say, I rather suspected that. Now, Brian, a couple of very key questions, please. Number one, where are we right now in terms of the 8,500 uh, forecourts around the country? And secondly, uh, when is normality... Really easy question for you. When is normality going to return? <laughs> well... We, we represent the independents, which is about 65% or five and a half thousand of the total number. So not supermarkets, not BP and Shell company owned, the, the independents who do have the oil brand on their forecourts. And we conducted a survey this morning, a sample of about a third, 1,500 sites right across mainland UK, not Northern Ireland. Amazingly, they don't have any panic buying over there, which is great. So we surveyed our members, and this morning, 37% of the 1,500 sites had no fuel. And that actually was a significant improvement over the survey we did on Sunday, where the least worst was 50% had closure, and the worst was a group which had 90% of their sites closed. So, yes, there has been some improvement. And, in fact, in addition to that, 40% of the sites had either a diesel grade to buy or a petrol grade to buy. And a lucky 23% had both grades and were operating normally. So there was some trend improvement. But that obviously depends on geography and your point about Northern Ireland. I think, you know, there are parts, from what I understand of it, Scotland, Northern Ireland, where the pressure is not as great, perhaps, as in London 
and the home counties. Yes, it's, it's very much where there's vehicle density, which is where population density, and it's really the metropolitan parts, particularly of England. Yeah. And, 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 what... and, and Brian, finally, when do we get back to absolute normality? Come on, name the day, please. Well, that depends, Nigel, on us, the motorists. Are we going to go, when we filled up our tank, the brim last Friday, we get to tomorrow and we think, oh my goodness, we've only got a half tank, I better go and fill up again. Well, if they can resist that urge and just leave it a few days to try and allow us with the industry to replenish the stocks underground, we will be better off. But yeah. we will be watching very carefully as we go into this weekend to see if there's any sign of equilibrium starting to take place between supply and demand. At the moment, it looks as though demand is going to be more than supply for a few days yet. Yeah, I have that feeling too. Brian Madison, thank you very much indeed. And remember, folks, you know, I'm framing this debate that we've got this panic as much as anything through a failure of political leadership. I want you to tell me what you think. GBviews at gbnews.uk. You can also send in your Barrage the Farage questions, which I'll deal with at the end of the show. Now, to Brighton, perhaps not the biggest day of the Labour Party conference, but Darren McCaffrey, our political editor, is there. Darren, um, how's it been in Brighton today? Um, and isn't it extraordinary? In the midst of this national crisis, I'm not hearing anything from the Labour Party about the fuel crisis and the government's lack of leadership. Yeah, indeed. Well, we talked about this last night when we were in many regards, Nigel, about how this should be an opportune moment for the opposition to effectively give the government a bit of a kicking. It must be said somewhat justifiably so that they've not necessarily been on top of this crisis over the last couple of weeks and certainly that they should have seen it coming. Uh, now, today, I think we got a bit of a sense that Labour were starting to finally get on that bandwagon. Uh, we heard from Keir Starmer saying that the government really should have seen this coming. And also, as we said, I, heard, I interviewed John Ashworth, he's the Shadow Health Secretary today, uh, and he was saying that ministers were essentially missing in action and that they needed to work with uh, the unions to ensure that key workers, for example, had access to those four courts. Now, we have heard from Boris Johnson, haven't we, in the last couple of hours, suggesting that that, he feels, is not necessary, given that the crisis seems to be easing somewhat. Uh, but you're right, I think Labour were pretty late to the game in all of this, uh, but at least they were on a certain type of message today, and this is what uh, the Shadow Health Secretary had to say to me a little bit earlier on. Do you think Labour's taking advantage of this, though? It clearly is a crisis. It's a pretty bad moment for the government, though it feels that Beer and Brighton were slightly detached from it all and that, you know, Labour haven't really been hammering the government much on this. Rachel Reeves made a brief reference to it in her speech yesterday. Do you think Labour's missed a bit of an open goal? Well, it's not so much about open goals. I mean, I've been talking about it on your television channel, on the on your rival television channels uh, uh, as well, and I'm continuing to talk about it all day. And this is why I'm saying that... Like, and I just want Sajid, I'm sure Sajid Javid watches GB News, so I'm saying to him, if you're watching me, Sajid, you know, get round the table now. Look, I'm here, Sajid, I'm here with the GMB and Unison. If you want me to get the GMB and Unison who represent care workers, who represent nurses, I can probably get them on a phone call with you, but he's got to do it. Well, I have to say, at least he's on the front foot, uh, very clearly on the front foot. Uh, tomorrow, the Starmer speech... Just how important is this, Darren? 
really crucial moment, I think, in many regards, Nigel. It's really fascinating. You look at this conference, you know, you had this big internal debate on Saturday about whether you should change rules. We then had that whole kind of fuss to a large degree. And it must be said, justifiably so, opinion pulled out tonight suggesting most people don't agree with Angela Rayner when it comes to branding the Prime Minister and Conservatives as scum. Clearly a massive distraction for what Labour are trying to do here. Many would say for her own political ends. Then we had the resignation yesterday of a shadow cabinet minister. Today we had the Baker's Union unaffiliating from Labour for the first time in 119 years, again attacking Keir Starmer's leadership. And so you've got all this happening around the fringes of this party conference, but fundamentally, and this might seem a little odd when actually you're looking at it from a distance, but when you talk to the delegates and the party members here, Nigel, there's actually a sense of optimism. They feel that they've turned the corner on Corbynism to a degree, that the party's drifting back to the centre, that they have got some policy ideas that they want to present to the public, but the problem is they have to convince the public of them. Keir Starmer has to do that, and that is why tomorrow is so crucial for not just him, but for Labour, his leadership. Can he convince the British public that the policy platform Labour are going to stand on potentially will win back millions of voters they've lost and win the next election? And that is a big ask, given Boris's 80-seat majority. It certainly is, Darren. Thank you. We'll be back with you in Brighton tomorrow evening to see how Keir Starmer performs. In a moment, we're going to talk about what happened in Grimsby yesterday. Yes, there was a tornado. How often do they happen? And are we in this country prepared for them? Well, is the panic at the pumps a result of political leadership failure? Your responses, James says... Where is the government, question mark? That's when the army should step in to investigate each car, each driver that takes more petrol than it should take. Um, I think that may be a tad over the top, but, hey, people feel strongly. John says to me on email, perhaps this is all part of a master plan to finally switch to electric vehicles. Well, as I say, those with Teslas are feeling great today, but if the lights go out because of our appalling lack of of strategic energy planning, uh, that wouldn't look so clever, would it? Mel on email says, essential workers should be given priority at petrol stations, but after lockdown, we are all essential workers. And yet, there is that problem. As I say, back in 2000, when several thousand stations ran out of petrol, priority was given, but the teachers weren't included, and I think a couple of thousand schools had to close as a result. This is not easy. Now, I couldn't believe it. A mini tornado ripped through some villages. Humberston and freak winds damaged houses and overturned vehicles on the East Coast. And I, I just wonder, we think of tornadoes, don't we? We think of, I mean, look at, look at this, real destruction, real damage. Um, and we think of tornadoes as being perhaps, you know, it happens in the West of America and it doesn't really happen here. So I just thought, well, interesting. Let's find out. How often do we get tornadoes in this country? Are they becoming more frequent? And is there anything actually at all we can do about them? Or are they just events determined by God? Well, joining me is famous weatherman John Ketley. John, good evening. Good evening to you, Nigel. So were you surprised to hear about a tornado uh, up in Grimsby yesterday? Well, I wasn't really surprised because it was actually a squall line that was sweeping it across the country. There is an organisation called TORO, which you may have heard of, Nigel. It's the Tornado and Storm Research Organisation. 
And that's been going for the best part of 50 years, really. And they put a warning out yesterday morning because this squall line was developing and coming from west to east across the country. It was actually quite likely to be a very developmental situation because we were replacing the warm weather that we've had for much of September uh, by some much colder winds coming in from the west. So get, you get the contrast in the weather, the change in the air mass as the cold front comes in, and that's a likely time, really, when you are going to get some very active instability in the atmosphere. So how frequent are these? And, are, and, and the key question, are they becoming more frequent? I wouldn't say they are, actually, at the moment. It's very difficult to know how many tornadoes we get in this country because most of them, quite frankly, are very short-lived and they would probably go across farmers' fields and not even be seen. Uh, so you're probably looking at a figure of 30 a year, and I don't think that really has changed. Toro would know more about it than I would. Uh, but I think 30 a year is probably a very good figure. But having said that, if you look back to November 1981, we had 104 in one day across eastern England. That was absolutely exceptional. So if you're going back, what, 40 years exactly, we had a very, very severe tornado episode. Well, we haven't seen that sort of thing since then. But you may remember down in Birmingham in 19, uh, 2005, it was. I think it was the 28th of July. I was on the beach in Bournemouth at the time. I do remember it very well. There was no tornado there. Uh, just a few ice creams. Uh, but, uh, yes, it, it devastated Birmingham, parts of Small Heath, and it went straight through St Andrew's football ground. So I got a call from them wondering what was all going on there. And, of course, I knew nothing about it. But that was a pretty severe tornado. The one we had yesterday up in North East Lincolnshire, East Yorkshire, was, yes, a mini tornado. Right, OK. And, John, uh, as you say, a big change in the weather, um, much to the relief of those uh, hoping that wind energy will solve all of our problems. The winds come back, <laughs> the rains come back. Um, is autumn here to stay, or will there be another flicker of late summer? Will we get another surge? Well, not in the short term, I have to say, Nigel. I think there's a, an awful lot more wind and rain coming in at the moment, and uh, outside your window of the studio there, it's probably torrential rainfall at the moment. Uh, so, yeah, we've got uh, very unsettled conditions to last through to the weekend and beyond. I think there is a sign that some warmer weather may well return, but at this time of the year, you probably get the warmer weather because of the legacy of the hurricanes across the other side of the pond. And if that warmer air comes across, it's probably going to bring you some pretty torrential rainfall at the same time. So any warmth, I think, is very short-lived at the moment. Thank you for your frank honesty as ever, John Ketley. Great to see you here again on GB News. So tonight, it is the premiere of the 25th James Bond film. It's happening at the Royal Albert Hall. It's going on, I think, even as we speak. And is, of course, the last Bond film in which Daniel Craig is going to star. So it's going to be a pretty star-studded occasion. The Prince of Wales, the Duchess of Cornwall, uh, the Cambridges, uh, many of the great and good are there. Um, and let's just see uh, what this Bond film's all about. isn't dead. What about you? I love James Bond films. I think they're great. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, this one's been delayed quite a bit. Um, Sarah Robertson, entertainment editor for the Sunday Mirror, is joining me. Sarah, this was originally going to be out, what, 18 months ago or something like that? Yes, it was meant to be out two years ago, but obviously the pandemic has, as we know with everything, impacted on the film industry, on the making of James Bond and pushed it right back. So now we have the new release date of the 30th of September this week. 
And you've obviously had a preview of it. How good a film is it? This is amazing. You're going to love it, Nigel, as a James Bond fan. Good. You know, it's high octane. There's lots of car chases. You know, Daniel Craig at his best, doing all his stunts as usual. He really throws himself into this with gusto because, as we know, he has said this is this is his last one. So he's going out on this on a high. And Barbara Broccoli, the producer of James Bond, has, has promised fans that it's going to deliver a satisfying end for Daniel Craig's James Bond. And it's a culmination, his portrayal is basically a culmination of everything that his character's gone through since coming into the film franchise 15 years ago. And she herself said it's a pretty epic film. And I think you're gonna be really, really pleasantly, presently surprised. No, and I have to say, he's been a really, really good James Bond. And there's endless speculation about whether a woman or somebody else should become the next James Bond, but that wasn't the way that Fleming wrote the books. No. Surely they're going to keep the Bond figure. I mean, is James Bond going to go woke? This is really my worry. Well, with anything, times have changed, obviously, since when Ian Fleming started started writing the novels and then they became films. So we do live in different times now. But Barbara Broccoli, the producer, has ruled out that the next Bond will be a woman. She has very much said Bond stays a man. She's not ruled out Bond being a person of colour, but she has ruled out that it would be a woman. And obviously we've had different names in the frame, um, such as Idris Elba, you know, other young actors as well. So the speculation right now is who is going to get Bond. And it could be, you know, that it is, is you know, somebody of colour, which, which, which I think would be wonderful because it would obviously be representative of the times. And we do live in a more diverse society and a more diverse world these days. And obviously, you know, people from all walks of life or, or living in Britain today, you know, doing really high, high powered jobs. So I think James Bond should be representative to, to everybody. And there's no reason on earth why it can't be an actor of colour. And I very much would, would welcome that. And I'd love to see Idris Elba step, step into those shoes. I think he would be amazing. Well, given the way you talk this film up, I don't see interest in James Bond going anywhere. It's no. been with us, what, for almost 60 years. And, Sarah, have a great evening at the premiere and thank you for taking time out to join us. Thank you. The Bond film. I will be going as soon as I possibly can. But before that, I'm going to be talking pints with hotelier, Brexit backer, Boris backer, but somebody who's got some fairly strong views on the way the government handled the pandemic. Yep. I'll be joined by Sirocco Forte. It's my favourite part of the show. It's Talking Pines, and I'm joined by Hotelier Sirocco Forte. Rocco, welcome. Good evening. To Good evening. Talking Pines. Yeah. I, had to stop. I haven't got a pint. Well, you've got a glass of wine, and I had to yes. stop you in the break from, from, from dipping in early, didn't yeah. I? Indeed, indeed. But mm. uh, this time of the evening, I prefer a glass of wine. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Rocco, your family, you, you know, your father came here from Italy. Uh, you've been an amazingly successful family. You've been honoured, knighted in this country. You've received the Order of Merit in Italy. So you kind of, you know, honoured in both countries, which is pretty unusual. Now, I have to ask you, the final of the European football championships, England versus Italy, did you have any split loyalties there? Or, or were you a winner either way? 
Exactly. That's what I said when people asked me who I was going to back. I said the best team. <laughs> oh, well, there's a slight, slightly split loyalties uh, there. Never, but... never usually because Norman Tebbit had the critic. Crit- that, but that's what I was hinting at. Yes. Yes, I know. And so it was very. Nice. I said, "Thank God, Italy don't play cricket." <laughs> <laughs> well, I was there. It was agony watching England lose on penalties, but then we always lose on penalties, so it wasn't a great it's... surprise. I guess all the years, you know, that you've been involved in business and you've seen some ups and downs, you've seen recessions and, and, and property price collapses and great times and all the rest of it, but I guess nothing like the pandemic where your income was sort of just wiped out overnight. I know you've been very critical of the way the government handled much of this, although you had COVID yourself, didn't you? Yes, right at, right at the beginning, actually. So... I got it over with, which but, was quite a, quite a nice position to be in, actually. But you, did, but you had it for some time, didn't you? Well, I had, I had two weeks. It was a really nasty flu in me, but I never had any breathing problems or had to go to hospital or anything like that. Uh, but uh, luckily, I was sort of quite fit, and so I think that probably helped. I mean, government, did they have any option but to lock down to begin with? Well... Uh, it's interesting that if you look at the United States, where some states locked down and others didn't, you look at Sweden, which didn't lock down, uh, the states in the United States had similar outcomes, and Sweden actually had a better outcome than any other country in Europe. And the reality of lockdown is all it does is postpone uh, the virus. It doesn't deal with it. It doesn't uh, do away with it altogether, unless, of course, you have vaccines on the way, which, uh, which then it halts the spread for a while and, and, until the vaccines effectively catch up. Yeah. Uh, and both times we locked down in this country, um, infections were falling uh, before, the, before the lockdown. And I think that my criticism is the government didn't think about the economy at all. Uh, they, uh, they only thought about, uh, about the pandemic. They published, uh, published figures in a way to... Uh, to scare and terrifying people. In fact, it was sort of government terrorism. And it's not only in the UK, it happened across the whole, the whole of Europe. And we're, we're seeing the aftermath of it now, that if you see polls, uh, polls that are people still in favour of, of lockdown, a lot of people are still afraid. I know. I know. I mean, I have to say, those, adver- those adverts the government put out, they did frighten people hugely. Do you think your industry whether it's hotels or nightclubs or the tourism industry as a whole, do you think you're represented properly in government, understood in government, or is it perhaps time government took a different approach to this? Well, not understood uh, at all, and there's not really much interest uh, in in our industry because it's so widespread. Yeah. Uh, The pockets of labour are very very small. Uh, You don't have the dramatic effect of a factory opening with 5,000 jobs, but the reality is that, uh, that 10% of the workforce in this country are employed in, in the tourism industry. So it's hugely important to, uh, to, the, to the country. Uh, you know, we were treated if effectively along with entertainment and, 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 and other industries of that yeah. kind worse than anybody else. We were the last to be allowed to reopen uh, when there's no sign of any infections being caught in in, in hotels and restaurants. Most of them have been caught in hospitals and care homes, in fact. Well, I'm afraid that is true. Yeah. So what happens with you? Do you lobby the Department of Culture, Media and Sport? Is that where you have to go? Is there, is there anybody assigned 
to tourism. Well, there is a sort of minister which has a, who has a sort of, I think, quintuple portfolio, Nigel Huddleston, yeah. who looks after the industry. But the, the, the whole department is called Department of Di uh, Digital cult Culture, Digital Media and Sports. Tourism isn't even mentioned. It's the most important industry of the lot. So we've uh, got 10% of people working in tourism and no direct ministerial representation no, of any no, kind no. at all. In Italy, funny enough, which is even, tourism is even more important than it is in this country, mm. uh, Draghi appointed a minister of tourism and created a department of tourism um, when he first, first came to power. So there's a minister uh, who, who is, has full responsibility for, for the industry right. as a whole. And that hadn't happened in Italy for a very long, very long time. So we need a minister for tourism. I think so. I think so. And uh, we have a very good representative body, um, uh, very well led, and and uh, they've they've continually lobbied lobbied government over this period. Um, but I don't think they've been listened to very much. Mm. Interesting. Now, lorry driver shortages, staff shortages everywhere. Are you suffering from those problems? Yes, but funny enough, we're suffering from staff. Staff shortages all over, all over Europe. I know. We have the same thing in Germany. We have the same thing uh, in Italy. It's probably slightly, slightly worse here. I think there's an element until furlough finishes, um, you won't see the true nature of, of of the problem because I think there's a sort of psychological uh, thing that's happened with furlough. People have been sitting at home, not having to work, earning earning some money. Uh, and they say, well, this is a very nice way Great of living. life. You know, the work. sun shines, drink beer on the garden. talking about the work-life <laughs> balance. Uh, and when they have to go out again and earn a living, maybe, maybe the thing will change. It'll take a few weeks. But I think we'll see what the true situation is. I think that, um, that you know, I was a supporter of Brexit. Mm, and, I know. And, 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 very, and, uh, and, and very keen on it because I see the effects of the European Union on my businesses in, uh, uh, in, in continental Europe. Um, but, I mean, you just, you just don't change from one minute to the next overnight. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, you, you, there's usually a transition period before you, uh, you, you, you shut down the doors. Yeah. And I don't think that's, that's happened because it, the, the rules on, on entry uh, for, for Europeans uh, didn't become apparent until quite late in the day. So people haven't had time to to make up uh, for, for, for the lack of, uh, of, of European personnel. And I think there's a case, uh, particularly for young people who come here, partly study uh, uh, and develop their skills for a year or two, who then and improve their English, who then go back to their yes. country, uh, to, be allowed, to be allowed in. And, of course, 30, 40 years ago, they came from South Africa, they came from Canada, they came from New Zealand, they came from Australia. Yeah. And then we made it very difficult for them, and they all came from Europe. But look, I've got no problem with a, work, a flexible work permit scheme where people come to work yeah. for a fixed period of time, as opposed to the automatic right to settle. Um, and, it, and if we get that balance right, um, then that would be a good thing. Although I suspect, as you say, it won't be that easy because there are labour shortages yeah. almost everywhere. Yeah. Do you, I mean, you back Brexit, you were very prominently... I mean, you, you've been a Eurosceptic for a very, very long yes, time. Yes, indeed. But, I mean, the, the, the whole point of Brexit is not Brexit itself. It's what we did with it. Oh, what and, we do with it, yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, and what we were supposed to do is make this most attractive country in the world to invest in yeah. and, do, and do business in uh, and really uh, get the economy moving 
an enterprise moving in a way which then allowed us to be more generous with the welfare state. This, this, <coughs> this hasn't happened at all. In fact, if effectively, the opposite has happened. Taxes have increased. increased there's more bureaucracy rather than, rather than less. Well, Rocco, I spent the best part of my adult life fighting this battle, um, you know, and we were very... We're very, very grateful to yeah, you. Well, Those of us who are on, well, well, <laughs> on the same I mean, view. Yes. It was a pretty lonely... Without you, it wouldn't have happened, actually. Well, thank you. It was a very lonely path yeah. for a number of years. Yeah. Um, but when it came to Brexit, you know, I couldn't deliver it. I wasn't in government. Uh, but it's been down to Boris Johnson. And I know that you you backed Boris in 2019. You, you, you put some money into the campaign. You even threw a big celebratory party for Boris and... I didn't say... I, I gave a, a celebratory party for the, uh, for the central office staff. OK. Slightly okay. different. OK, well, good, anyway. for, no, good for yeah. you, because they're yeah. the ones that get ignored normally, yeah. so good for yeah. you. But we can't talk about the lack of opportunities that have been created by Brexit, which I do broadly agree with you on. And I, I, think, I think there are some good things happening. I think, I think, you know, American investment is coming to the UK, not France, Germany and Italy, so they're seeing... Even though we're not getting it quite right, they're seeing us as being a better bet. Um, I think, you know, a trade deal with Australia, it, it may not be the biggest deal in the world, but it at least shows the way forward. Yes, indeed. If we get things and right. Trans-Pacific partnership, if that, that, which that, that can happen as well. It's all, it's all up yeah. to us. It's all up to us. I mean, I, look, I never pretended that Brexit would make us wealthy and successful, but it would just put us back in charge of our own destiny. But how is Boris doing? Well, I, I don't think uh, I don't think very well at the moment. I don't see you know I don't see a clear sense of direction, uh, and uh, and uh, and and really a conservative approach uh, to the economy. We seem to have it seems to be an alternative Labour Party at the moment. Oh, high levels no. of government, high levels no, of government no, expenditure, no. and and this uh, is not high, high levels of tax. Rocco, this is no, that's nonsense. And so on. That's nonsense. It's a Green Party. It's not a Labour Party. Well, it's a bit it's of both. It's much more radical than Labour. It's a bit, a bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> more radical. Well, well, well nationalising I, I, I look at it more in, in economic terms. But, I mean, I agree. You know, this helter-skelter rush uh, for greenery, and without thinking of the side effects, and the very people who voted Conservative are going to suffer most from this because the fuel price, the, the cost of living is going to go up uh, significantly. Uh, and, the cost of, and, and they're not going to like it very much. So, Boris Johnson has got a very engaging, entertaining, amusing personality and style. Uh, I've been saying for some months that I see him as a cheerleader, far more than I see him as a leader. Do you think people like you were slightly hoodwinked by him? Because... Is he really a conservative at all himself? Well, I mean, if, if you read all the articles that he wrote, um, um, you know, they were, they, they were mostly very, very conservative. He was also a, a libertarian, this whole lockdown So thing we believe, yeah. Was, uh, you know, was actually, I think he resisted as much as he could, although in the end he succumbed. Um, but, but I... Uh, I you know, he is a vote. He has. He was a. He has been a vote winner. Mm. He helped. You know, with him, mm. it helped the momentum for, for Brexit, and and also he won a, a huge majority. Uh, but I mean, if you're a cheerleader, if you're if uh, and, and, uh, a front a front man, you make yeah. sure you have a good set of people around you who support you and who know who know who help you to develop your policies and and ideas. 
Uh, I mean, it's a very, it must be a very lonely job being prime minister unless you have strong people around you who yeah. you can trust. And I don't think he has those at the moment. And, uh, and I don't know what the reason for that is, whether it's his fault or whether it's the fault of people around him. Mm. So you're a bit disappointed? Yes, I am at the moment. Uh, well, I tell you what, there's only one thing for it. We'll finish the drinks after the show. Maybe that'll cheer us up. But you're not the first person to sit in that seat and feel a bit disappointed with the way Brexit's going, with the way that Boris is doing. But thank you for all you do for tourism in this country. And thank you for coming on Talking Pints. And if you're listening there in Downing Street, I don't normally like to see an expansion of government, but I do think, given the size of a tourism industry... I'm, I'm going to campaign on what Rocco's proposed here. I think there should be a Minister for Tourism. It makes sense, it's a key industry, and it needs to happen. That was Rocco Forte on Talking Pints. Right, we're approaching the end of the show, and it's your favourite part of the show, because it's Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions, which I do not get previous sight of. So here goes. Matt asks me, is it the case that the EU has run the country for so long that the government now doesn't know how to handle the crisis? It's actually a very good question. It's very interesting. I remember one of the arguments that was put against Brexit uh, when we were arguing on our side that what well, we could do our own trade deals and choose our own friends around the world. Oh, we've got no expertise. There's nobody in the country capable of negotiating trade deals because, of course, it had been done on our behalf for the best part of 50 years. So, yes, many of the essential functions of government uh, we've got very, very little experience in. But, no, I think in the case of this, this is a lack of foresight and courage by government and quite why a Conservative government doesn't want to take on the DVLA when they, frankly, they, above all, are holding the country as hostages, I just don't know. They're career politicians, they're not people of real principle. I'm afraid I think that really is the problem. Philippa asks me, who would you see as the next Mayor of London? Not Sadiq Khan, is all I can say. I have to tell you, uh, Sean Bailey, who sat in that seat a few weeks ago, I thought he was really impressive. He wasn't given a chance by the media. He wasn't even given a chance by the Conservative Party. Everyone wrote him off completely. He still got 45% of the vote. But whether a mayor needs to have the endorsement of a Conservative or Labour Party, I'd much rather see individuals running who could actually act as salesmen for London all around the world and perhaps have an ear for business. And that, I think, is what we need from a mayor of London. Anthony asks me, do you think the result of a German election will weaken or strengthen the European Union? It will neither weaken nor strengthen the European Union. It will neither weaken nor strengthen the European Union. It is a pretty neutral result. Can Sir Keir Starmer, Mary asks, win over the country tomorrow? Well, I tell you what, in some ways I hope he does, because a good democracy has somebody leading the opposition challenging the government. And through all of this charade of the last week with the fuel crisis, Keir Starmer's not laid a finger on Boris Johnson's government, and that really is very, very disappointing. I wish him well tomorrow. I do.